I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We will be joined today by Nadim Haslam, who I met any number of years ago and was so smitten with the quality of his conversation that I ran right out to get one of his books called The Wasted Vigil, which mesmerized me. And I am delighted that Nadim's going to be joining us today to talk about his latest book, The Golden Legend. His latest luminous novel is set in corrupt, war-torn, violent Pakistan. And despite this backdrop, we are guided through a story of love, hope, and beauty— by Nargis, a recently widowed, successful architect, her protege, Helen, the daughter of domestic staff, and Imran. Nadim was born in Pakistan. He and his family then fled to the UK when he was 14 years old, and he continues to live in London. He managed to publish his first short story in a Pakistani newspaper at age 13, and he's written five novels, The Season of the Rainbirds, Maps for Lost Lovers, The Wasted Vigil, The Blind Man's Garden, and now The Golden Legend. Stay tuned after my interview with Nadim to hear some book recommendations for all the grads and dads in your life straight from L.A. and the Skylight Bookstore. But first, my interview with Nadim. Nadim, thank you for uh, joining us to talk about this latest novel, The Golden Legend. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I was struck by a conflict at the end of the story where part of me was fascinated by the extraordinary fortitude that contributes to the ability to survive, endure, and even find beauty and love in an environment that they live in, and on the other hand, makes, I hope, one think about why people are fleeing these countries when people want to characterize immigrants as some other sort of being um, that is trying to populate the rest of the world. Yes, um, that's, a, that's a beautiful observation, and um, that was that was partly the impulse behind the book. I really wanted to show at one level, um, because, um, I mean, last year, the latest figure we have is that 5,000 um, refugees drowned trying to get to Europe. And that's the official figure, and sometimes one fears that the, that the unofficial figure might be higher. And people keep asking the question, why are these people coming? What mm. is wrong with their homeland? <laughs> what is happening over there? And I just wanted to show patiently, paragraph by paragraph, page by page, character by character, saying this is why they are coming. This is why they can't stay. So that was one of the levels. And I always say, you know, I have no imagination that um, <laughs> that everything in my book comes out of real life. What Emily Dickinson said, to make a prairie, it takes one clover and a bee and reverie. The reverie alone will do if bees are few. You know, so I take events from real life and plant them inside my mind to see what happens. So with this book, I'm in a rather curious position. I was working on my previous novel, The Blind Man's Garden, when on 8th of January 2011, in Tucson, Arizona, Congresswoman Gabriel Giffords was shot mm. and wounded. She was having an assembly, as it were. And uh, four days previous, on the 4th of January, in Pakistan, a governor had been murdered by his bodyguard because the governor had wanted 
change in Pakistan's blasphemy laws, and this chap who was supposed to be looking after the governor actually shot him because he was a religious zealot and he didn't want any any change in Pakistan's blasphemy laws. So I began to to connect Gabriel Gifford's wounding and the death of the governor in Pakistan, who, whose name is Salman Tasir. And I thought, this has to be a novel, that this has to be the beginning point of an inquiry into what means are allowed to us if we disagree with someone to express our displeasure. You know, mm. are we allowed to shoot someone because we don't agree with them? Right. That was one of the things. And, and of course, Pakistan being the kind of place it is, um, that kind of thing, assassinations, etc., etc., are not unheard of. And I think that might be the way things are going, that that might be the case in many, many other places too. So in a way, the golden legend is a warning. I want you to say to the rest of the world, just please look at these pages. I'm going to take a society and I'm going to drop a speck of hatred into it. And I'm going to show you how it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. Pakistan is a logical conclusion of all this that has been set into motion over the past few months. And, and so the thing, you know, the thing, Nadine, that I wish for, when I read a book like The Golden Legend, I am able to be in the shoes of the people in the book. As I was reading your book, I felt as if I were an observer in the space, that the language that you use to describe the terror that exists when a military policeman comes to try to convince um, Nargis to testify that the Mm -hmm. American who killed her husband should be freed was palpable. I became panicked. Yes, as a writer, I panicked. Yeah. (laughs) I was becoming more and more frightened as I was nearing that episode. I knew I had to write that episode. So this man comes into this widow's house to try to convince her of something. And I mean, we can't reveal too much, but again, that kind of things happen. So so, so you have to say that, um, uh, I mean, I always say that my sea is imaginary, but the fish in it are real. Mm. So I know that kind of thing that, um, that you know, um, these are these are things from real life. And someone like Imran, for, for example, who is a militant from Kashmir, who's come to Pakistan to train as a guerrilla, but he hates the guerrilla camp because they, they have their own agenda. So he moves away from them. I met a young man like mm. from Kashmir. I was in Pakistan and I began to talk to this young man. And he said that uh, his sister had been beaten so savagely while pregnant by Indian soldiers that they broke the arm of the fetus mm. inside her belly, that the baby was born with a broken arm. Now, I mean, I could not have made that up. And that is part of what I'm trying to do in that this thing happened in the world. So do we wish to know this or do we just ignore it and go around pretending that we live in a beautiful world? And and of course, the, the paradox is that we do live in a beautiful world. Yeah, And that's the other attempt in my novels, in that... I think one of the key questions which I'm trying to ask it, throughout my life and through and throughout my all my five novels, including The Golden Legend, is does the beauty of the world diminish the horror of the world? And does the horror of the world diminish the beauty of the world? Mm. Um, and I don't have the answer. I mean, I'm not arrogant enough to think that, um, you know, I have grasped a dozen facts 
about existence, therefore I know all the answers. You know, I think some of these things are an ongoing project that me, my readers, our listeners, that this might be a communal project at a most fundamental way that we are trying to come to an answer. I think of always of that beautiful poem by my great master, the great Polish poet, Czeslaw Milos, who wrote when he was thinking about um, Osip Mandelstam um, being put to death by Joseph Stalin. He wrote, You who wronged a simple man, bursting into laughter at the crime, kept a pack of fools around you to mix good with evil, to blur the line. Do not feel safe. The poet remembers. You can kill one, but another is born. The words are written down, the deed, the date. So that is my attempt, that I'm going to write down the deed and the date. Beyond that, I think, um, what else can we do? Well, there's any number of dimensions to discuss this. One is the one that you so beautifully just articulated with the poem. But the other, to me, is as an American reading this, and even as an American who is the daughter of two immigrants, for people outside of these places like Pakistan, that they understand that that can happen anywhere. Mm. And increasingly, I think um, people in other seemingly safe countries are understanding it. So to me, in addition to letting those wielding the hammer know that they're being watched, I think the other part of the message that I would hope for from books um, so beautifully put together as yours is to remember that we need, we each need to have a voice. We can't consider that impossible to be here if you want to just act on self-interest or to allow that to happen somewhere else, that the Hmm. part of the golden legend to me is what I stated earlier about understanding a place and a time. But the other part is a call to action. Absolutely. Sometimes I think that in today's world where bad behavior seems to be rewarded, to be decent is a political act. Right. <laughs> you know, um, I, was in, I was in my town center in the town where I live, and um, sometimes uh, some people set up stalls where, you have, where they give you some leaflets. I'm sure it's the same in America, mm-hmm. too, where they give you some leaflets and you give them some coins and you take away some leaflets. And um, this particular um, uh, stall I stopped at was for the National Health Service because um, in England the National Health Service is always being undermined by the conservative policies. And I took some leaflets and I put my hand into my pocket and dropped some coins into their donation box. And just as I was walking away, I noticed that they had a badge a lapel badge, and I wanted one of them. So I took the badge and put my hand into my pocket again to take out some money, and I was about to drop it into the donation box when the young man placed his hand on my hand and said, it's okay, you've given enough. Mm. And I thought that was that was so extraordinary, that uh, in this day and age, when we are told that everybody is after money and and success, to, to say to someone, it's okay, you've given enough, I think that... that That was such a beautiful thing. And the important thing to remember about the people who are in power is that not only do they lie to us about themselves, they lie to us about us Mm. in that they they tell us certain things which are true for them, but they are not true for us. And we sometimes believe them. So they say 
They say, you know, um, everybody wants power. Well, frankly, I have never wanted power in my entire life. <laughs> you know, I don't want power over anyone. And they say, oh, everybody wants to get ahead. No, I don't want to get ahead. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't want to get ahead. I want to be left alone and, and do my work. And I am not alone. I see people every day like that young, young man, as I said, who said, who said to me, it's okay, you've given enough. People around me every day are, are sacrificing their own happiness, are giving up their time to look after other people. If you live in England, in a town like the one where I live in the north, and let's say you work behind a counter, and a customer comes in and he or she would like you to do something, thing to say, I'm sorry, what you are asking, it, it can't happen. Now, having told the customer this, you are now counting the seconds. When are you going to call me the N-word, as mm-hmm. the, the, the equivalent of the N-word? Mm-hmm. This is how thin the veneer of yeah. civilization can be. You know, people keep saying that, um, that, oh, with the Trump world, the gloves are coming off. The gloves have always been off. Yeah. Now the mask is coming off. Now they want to do everything brazenly. There is a clip doing the rounds of the Internet at the moment. It's a small fragment, about 20 seconds, from an interview with James Baldwin. Uh, we don't know what the question is. Uh, we can guess, but it doesn't matter anyway. What matters is Baldwin's answer. And, and that is the clip. I will probably slightly misquote, but here it is. Just what is it that you would like me to reconcile myself to? I was born in this country nearly 60 years ago. I'm not going to live for another 60. You've always told me that it takes time. Well, it's taken my time. It's taken my father's time. It's taken my mother's time. It's taken my uncle's time. It's taken my brother's and my sister's time. It's taken my niece's and my nephew's time. Just how much time do you want Mm -hmm. your progress? His fury is barely containable as he pronounces the last three words for your progress. You know, because this is how long these things have been going on. That's the point I'm trying to make. Right. I'm always about how do we remedy that. So mm-hmm. I, so I come to two questions or, or maybe three, Nadim. Yes. One is your main characters have such grace and dignity mm-hmm. and the capacity to, in the midst of all of this, enjoy a breeze, enjoy uh, literally using golden thread to put a beautiful book back together and to risking everything for love. Mm. Can someone like that exist in that environment and hold on to that capacity? I think so. Um, Well, um, the idea of mending the book because the soldier who comes into the house and tried to convince Nargis to to do his bidding, he, in order to threaten her, actually slices up, cuts up with a razor this beautiful book that you have, and he shreds it. And she, in a dazed, tries to, instead of taping the book, the pages back together, she tries to stitch them back together so that the whole book is scarred, as it were. Yes, yes, I mean, as I said, this is all linked. It's a very important question. It is linked to what I was saying previously, in that people do try to go about their daily business. Like the gentleman in the stall. Uh, absolutely, under, under immense stress. When I was growing up, I haven't had a very sort of cosmopolitan upbringing. Uh, so when I was in my early 20s and I, was, and I was living in a small town and I was reading and I was 
And I had given myself homework, as I said, this year I'm going to read all 14 and a half of Dickens' novel. Mm -hmm. This year I'm going to read all of Faulkner's work. This year I'm going to read all of Jane Austen, etc., etc. But I used to worry. I hope someone somewhere in a small town, somewhere far away from the metropolises in the United States and wherever this is being heard, I hope someone hears this. And I sometimes used to think that how will I ever connect with New York? How will I mm. ever get to know London even? I mean, even though I lived in England, I had never been to London. And I was quietly working. But I'm now so happy that that happened to me, in that my education was happening at a much more fundamental and deeper level. I didn't know how to use the New York underground system. I had never been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but I knew what a son was. Mm. I knew what a neighbor was. I knew what a brother was. You know, quietly, patiently in my 20s, these sort of layer by layer by layer, these silent and quiet experiences which came and which I am now using. I, I observed them all around me. You know? mm-hmm. And now the fact of the matter is that now I do know New York. Now I have been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now I do know London very well. You know, so that was one of the things I was trying to do, that just because you're on the margin doesn't mean that you don't have anything to contribute, Mm. you know. So if somebody out there is listening in a small town somewhere, please don't lose heart, just quietly work and uh, keep reading. I always say that libraries and books are the instruction manuals for human beings. Mm. Just read quietly, patiently, do your work, learn how to be alone and then make your art. Then the world will come to you. New York will come to you. I, I promise you. Nadim, I've heard you say that um, in talking about the role of fiction, that you don't consider it a coincidence that a book essentially is shaped and functions as a door. Yes. And I think that your commitment to the role of culture and the role of a book, I think that is the thing that just doesn't change. There is probably a young boy and girl or girl in Pakistan today or in Syria or in any other, you know, war-torn city who has probably the same homework assignment that you gave yourself. And how we spread that word, I I often think about my dad, um, who had emigrated from Hungary after having been in concentration camp, felt very committed to making the invisible in this country feel visible. Mm. And whether it was the sweeper in the supermarket or the toll bridge ticket taker, that he always felt by asking them how they were or asking their name mm. was powerful. No, that's, that's, that's actually very beautiful because the fact of the matter is that there is no such thing as an ordinary human being. Exactly. You know, and, um, and, and that has to be acknowledged. The, a human being with all his or her idiosyncrasies, their sense of color, their sense of justice, their sense of uh, love, Etc. Etc. So we have to know all all of that, and uh, and in a way of connect and form form a kind of collective. So Nadim, I wish we had hours to talk. When you and I met briefly a number of years ago, your quiet compassion 
was striking um, in conversation, and it's striking in your books. What what I'd like to thank you for uh, in closing is this. Lots of people, uh, particularly today, want to read happy books because the world seems frightening enough. And what you manage to do, I have found in every one of your books, and you do it again in The Golden Legend, is you take a world that feels dark and filled with despair and so effectively show us that humanity, uh, that grace, that beauty, that love can exist. Thank you very much. And I always quote the brilliant Marina Svetaiva, you know, who said, to you, insane world, only one reply, I refuse. Mm. I think uh, books like yours and writers like you do, in fact, give us the kind of hope that if they read books like this, that the world can be a better place, even if it's just your house or your neighborhood or your village. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nadim. I hope I get to see you again soon, and I hope we get to have uh, a longer conversation at some point. Absolutely. I hope so, too. People, for good reason, love to give books for graduation and Father's Day. We enlisted Mary Williams from the Skylight Bookstore in L.A. to give us a scoop on the perfect gifts for those grads and dads in your life. Let's take a listen. Mary Williams is the general manager of Skylight Books in Los Angeles. They opened in the mid-90s on the former site of another bookstore landmark called Chatterton's. Actor Jeffrey Tambor is a co-owner. We'll talk a little bit about that. And Mary's joining us for what we call our What's on the Front Table segment. Bookstores make the decision all the time about what's on their front table. They do it based on a good jacket. They think their customers will like it. They want their customers to like it. Uh, They're excited about it. So it always represents an interesting array of books. And this is obviously grads and dads season. Mary, we're delighted you could join us. Welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. I can't help but ask how you became a bookseller because being a bookseller isn't necessarily what we think of when we're five years old and you want to be a fireman <laughs> or an astronaut or something. How'd you become a bookseller? Uh, I came to it uh, not quite accidentally, but almost. Uh, after college, I moved to New York because I wanted to work in book publishing. And while I was looking for a job, I started working at the Strand Bookstore. I worked there for several months, and I really loved the work. Uh, I loved connecting people to books. I eventually did get a job in publishing, worked there for a few years. And when I moved back to California, I worked as a copy editor for a few years and then eventually decided that what I really wanted to do was go back to bookselling. It was just the best job that I'd had so far after college. I joined Skylight as a frontline bookseller and then eventually events manager and, and now as Skylight's general manager. So, How'd you find the shift from events manager to general manager? It's quite different. It's a mini business within the business. It is. It is. And because it involves so many aspects of the business, I had at least some minimal understanding. I had a little bit less of a learning curve than I might have if I'd come from another area of the store. That said, it's much harder to be the general manager of a bookstore. Yeah. Mary, you know what I was wondering about as I was introducing you? As I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, Echo Park and Silver Lake have become an area of Los Angeles that has quite a few young people. Absolutely. And I think that's 
been the case for probably the bulk of Skylet's existence here. The store was opened in 1996. Um, there are a lot of young creative people. There are a lot of young families. The neighborhoods also sort of extend up into the hills. So we're at the intersection of sort of the, I don't know if hipsters are still a thing, but sort of the young, creative, mm. freelance community. So Mary, cheer me up. Are these young people reading print books? Absolutely. Uh, as much as we were terrified about the ebook revolution, that it really just didn't hurt us in the way that we thought it was going to. We mm-hmm. sell ebooks through our website, like most independent bookstores, but not that many, and we have not seen a downturn in print books. Well, that's really encouraging because what I worry about is that the baby boomers were driving so much of the uh, print book sales. Will the millennials and the generations behind them be able to make up? for that part of the population with their reading habits? That's certainly a concern, although what we've seen so far is that because the younger generations spend so much time looking at their phones and their computers and um, all the other electronic devices, that they really do like curling up with a book. Mm. Uh, and I think it, it ties into this localism movement and also this sort of handcrafted movement that have really come back into vogue, um, this idea of a physical object is something beautiful and something to own and be proud mm. of and put on your bookshelf. And part of the experience of reading also, the, the tactile quality, I'm, you know, it's something that lots of people have talked about for a long time, but I've been fascinated by how many young people are talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very encouraged by what I've been seeing in terms of our audience continuing to buy print books and appreciate book design and the book as an object. All right. I'm going to go with your enthusiasm. <laughs> so how do you decide what to put on the front table and who do, who decides? Well, um, it starts with our buyer. If he orders anything in a large enough quantity, they don't fit on the shelf. And so we, uh, we know we're supposed to put some out on the table. But our on-the-floor booksellers have an enormous amount of discretion in terms of what books they want to face out, what books they want to put on the table. Of course, an attractive cover always helps, although we do try to look past Um, A book is more than its cover. Exactly, exactly. Uh, We do try to look past that and identify books that maybe fly under the radar that wouldn't show up in your, you know, online sales algorithm, but that uh, you could discover in a bookstore if you just spend a minute looking at it. Yeah. So what are some recommendations that you have that are on your front table for dads or grads? Sure. So for grads, um, we have a couple that uh, we're excited about. One, I don't know if you've seen uh, the John Waters Make Trouble. Oh, I did. Yes. It's a great book. It's his commencement address to the Rhode Island School of Design, and it's been charmingly illustrated as well. So that's a lot of fun for sort of a, a funny, subversive, creative grad. Uh, we also love Yumi Sakugawa's The Little Book of Life Hacks. Mm, I don't know that book. Yumi's one of our local authors. We started out selling her handmade zines years ago, and they were one of our best-selling items. And since then, she's gotten a book deal, and this is her third actual you know, bound book that she's put out. She has life lessons, but she illustrates them. And so this book is everything from you know how to get a grass stain out of your clothes to how to make your own peanut butter to you know how to organize your cables. It's very basic life things, but it's so charmingly illustrated. And it has a really lovely package on it and this gold foil cover. So uh, it's a really pretty attractive book to give to people. You know, one of the books that I read... Um a number of years ago, and it's odd that they both have similar titles that I really like that are sort of throwbacks. One is a book called The Art of Possibility mm-hmm. by Rosamond Stone Zander and her husband, Benjamin Sander. I don't know if it's a book that you've come across. I don't think I've 
seen it. But what they do, it remains in print, and it does do exactly what the title says. It gives you the tools, whether you're 65 or 25 or even 15, to think about what's possible and creates this kind of delicious liberation to imagine that you could be anything you want. I mean, it literally talks and reignites the idea that there's an infinite set of possibilities of what you could do. So I always find the idea that there is the capacity to transform our personal lives by thinking about the possibilities for us. So I always recommend uh, The Art of Possibility as, as one graduation idea. That sounds like a great graduation Yeah, I love book. it. Take a look at it. Yeah, I will. Um, for graduates, we also are recommending Your Inner Critic is a Big Jerk. Um, which is a book by Danielle Kreisa. Uh, It's another book for creative people, just basically telling you um, that your inner voice is always telling you you're not good enough, but what you should really just do is um, prove your inner voice wrong. And it's a very inspiring, charming uh, book about working harder to pursue your passions instead of giving up. Mm. Um, So we like that one as well. And how about for dads? For dads, well, um, the publishers of David Sedaris have excellent timing because they've put out this Yeah, not accidental. (laughs) It is not accidental. They're very smart. Uh, So they put out uh, Seth by Finding Diaries 1977 and 2002, and that's screaming out to be given for Father's Day. Uh, My own dad is getting this. We also are loving Viet Thanh Nguyen's The Refugees. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah, and I feel like you can never go wrong with a Pulitzer winner when you're you're gifting books to dads, so we're very excited about that. And one that we are just in love with um, from Flying Eye Books, which is the children's arm of Nobrow Book Publishers, is My Dad Used to Be So Cool. (laughs) It's a lovely book to give to a new dad that he can read to uh, his baby, but it's basically about a dad who used to be cool, he used to be in a rock band, he used to have a motorcycle, um, but now... Now he's just so boring. But then the kid eventually decides, all right, maybe his dad's pretty cool after all. Oh, I love that. It's really cute. The cover has a dad um, with a little kid on his shoulders and the dad's arms are all tattooed. So That's great. Mary, what do you think about as the book that changed your life? Well, um, I always say it was East of Eden uh, but it by John Steinbeck, but it wasn't really the book that changed my life so much as the high school English teacher who taught it to me. Um, I had one of those inspiring, life-changing English teachers who opens up the entire world of literature, and um, that was the book that did it for me. She spent months on it, and we really delved into the subtext and the biblical illusions and stages of morality and all these different things, and it was the first time that, as you know, as a sophomore, as a 14-year-old or 15-year-old, I really understood what books could do, and I will never forget that sort of sense of awe I felt when I was reading that book. Do you recommend it to customers now? I do, although it's so hard to do that because my experience with it is so personal. Yeah. It's a brilliant book, and I'm not totally the first person to say so, but that was the moment that books really opened up for me, and I kind of understood what literature could be. And do you think it stands the test of time? Absolutely. I mean, if you can make a suburban teenager identify with what's happening in that book, then I think... um, it's touching on universal qualities that almost anyone could appreciate. Uh, do you do you tend to reread books or not? I do sometimes. I'm actually right now rereading Pride and Prejudice, which I also haven't read since high school, but I am loving it. I, I've, for a few years now, I've been gone back and rereading classics that I'd read when I maybe 
was younger and didn't get everything I could out of them. Mm. And it's been really fun to realize that actually these aren't just assignments, they aren't just classics set in stone that should be revered, but they're actually really good books. There's a essayist by the name of Wendy Lesser. She might actually live out in L.A. Mm. Um, I, I might be making that up, but <laughs> she wrote a book about rereading books. And one of the things that she talks about in rereading books is that you revisit the you that existed when you read it, hmm. which I think is interesting because I tend not to reread books. And every once in a while, when I have reason to reread a book, I do find a little bit of what you said about Pride and Prejudice, that the self that read it when I was 15 or 25 or 35 was reading for a different reason than I would at my age now in my late 60s. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you find, when you reread it, do you think about it that way? Or do, or do you feel like you're reading the same book almost? In some ways, I feel like I'm reading a different book because I am coming from it, coming at it from a different perspective. And because I've just read so many more books now than I did when I first read these. And also because I'm reading them by choice. <laughs> They're not classroom assignments. They're right. books, you know, I don't have to write a paper on them. I can just really enjoy them as literature. It is a, a pretty different experience. When I reread 1984, I was blown away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by that book. I, I liked it, but I just, I don't think I fully appreciated it until I read it uh, when I was a bit older. I just recently reread Fahrenheit 451. I was shocked <laughs> at how prescient that book was. Absolutely. And and I think when I read it, I considered it, you know, where I probably read it decades ago, considered it just crazy science fiction, well-written, kind of interesting, but not anything I could imagine would seem like not science fiction so soon. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's kind of crazy. What's the best-selling book in the store right now? It looks like the Haruki Murakami Men Without Women is our current number one bestseller. So you have a pretty literary reader. We do. And that's partly a function of the fact that I think really from the store's origin, we were founded the same year that Amazon was founded. And of course, the, the chain bookstores were really taking hold in the 90s that um, we wanted to go the opposite direction. So go more literary, go more political, go more uh, under the radar than you could find. It is sort of our job to be finding the books that they might not hear about that are fun to introduce them to. Absolutely. And giving voice to writers who maybe aren't getting as much support or as much appreciation as they deserve. Exactly. So as I understand it, one of your owners or your owner is Jeffrey Tambor? He is. We're an LLC, and he is one of the members of the LLC. And uh, we are so pleased that he's proud of us and that he's very supportive, particularly in social media, of what we're doing here. And does he does he come in and give talks? Well, we just had him. He just wrote a memoir that came out in May, and we just hosted an event for him, which was great. It was at least 200 people were in here, um, all jammed into the store, and he gave a wonderful talk and hours-long book signing, and it was a really fun event. We'd never had an event for him before, although he's introduced other authors that were friends of his. Oh, nice. That's great. And do you hold most of your events in the store or outside the store? The vast majority in the store. We do about 20 a month in store, although we do um, sell a lot of books off-site for other speaker series, and then we do host our own ticketed off-site events as well. So this year we did Elizabeth Warren. We have Naomi Klein coming up. Um, Zadie Smith. What's um, Naomi Klein's new book? It actually just dropped, and it's a it's a paperback original called No Is Not Enough. It just came out from Haymarket, um, and it's a book about um, resistance and the need for a positive message in addition to just a, a 
obstructionist negative message. I always like her writing. She's always a huge seller here. We we do pretty well with our political books. We have a very political audience. Well, Mary, thank you so much. The next time I'm out in L.A., I'll make sure to get to Skylight Books. I've never been there, and I look forward to seeing it. And I really want to thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Many thanks to Nadim Aslam and to Mary from the Skylight Bookstore for being on the show today. For a complete list of all the books we've talked about today, including Nadim's The Golden Legend and all of our picks for dads and grads, just go to bookpodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Just the Right Book Podcast on iTunes and rate and review us. We're trying to get a better demographic handle on the people like yourself who listen to Just the Right Book Podcast. So I'd love to ask you to go to our website, bookpodcast.com, click on the listener survey, and it should take you about 30 seconds, and it would be really helpful to us. So thank you in advance for taking the time to do this. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all for listening.